0: Welcome to Nothing Ventured, a podcast exploring the stories that make the incredible world of tech and venture tick. Join me, Arish Shah, as I speak to the founders, investors, and ecosystem operators trying to make a dent in the future. Hello and welcome to this episode of Nothing Ventured with me, Arish Shah. Today, I'm really excited to have with me Brom Rector. Brom is the founder of Empath Ventures, a fund investing in startups developing novel psychedelic therapeutics and building infrastructure that scales research, development and delivery of psychedelic medicine. Prior to founding Empath, Brom spent seven years running institutional money and first experienced the benefits of psychedelics 10 years ago, helping him process family traumas and stay emotionally healthy whilst in the pressure cooker environment of quant funds at the same time as pursuing his CFA charter and a master's from Georgia Tech. Brom is also the host of the Integration Conversation, the leading long-form podcast in the psychedelic space where he talks to the people at the forefront of the industry. Brom, thank you so much for joining me here today. It's great to have you with me. Thanks so much for having me here, Arish. And you know, as a fellow podcaster, it's nice to be on
1: the other side of the table for once. So this is nice. It turns out it's a lot less stressful when you're not the person asking the questions. I'm already feeling like very relaxed and chilled about the whole thing. So thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: Amazing. I wish I could say the (laughs) same. (laughs) But let's kick off by understanding a little bit about what we mean by psychedelics, right? And what is the current regulatory framework surrounding them? I think most of us would probably not think beyond LSD or possibly psilocybin for magic mushrooms. Can you give us like a whistle-stop tour of what else is out there? And I think it'd be really interesting to juxtapose kind of where the psychedelic industry is versus cannabis and the kind of differences between those. Because I think there's a lot of confusion and overlap that people think exists whereas actually in reality they're quite distinct products right
1: yeah happy to talk about that stuff maybe one thing that we should touch on maybe even at a higher level is just like why why is it important you know care about psychedelics and for the most part although there are exceptions to this the general thesis behind investing in psychedelics or developing psychedelics into therapeutics is that psychedelics seem to be very beneficial for treating a lot of mental health issues and as you may know, the statistics around the mental health crisis are quite depressing and they seem to be getting worse, exacerbated by COVID. I forget the exact numbers, but something like one in five adults in the U.S. is diagnosed with some sort of mental health issue, whether that's depression or anxiety or something you know, even more serious like bipolar or schizophrenia. One in six American adults is currently on some sort of psychiatric medication. And I think over the course of your lifetime as an adult, you have something like a 50% chance of being diagnosed with some sort of mental issue at some point in your life, right? So this is a thing that affects a lot of people. And if it was just affecting a lot of people, but we had good treatments, maybe it wouldn't be such a big deal. But the problem is, is that a lot of the treatments we have are not very effective. So you think about SSRIs, which are commonly used as antidepressants. They don't work for a lot of people. I think one in three people don't respond to them at all. And for the people that do respond to them, they often have like negative side effects. People gain weight, people have sexual dysfunction, generally not the most pleasant medications to be on. And you have to kind of stay on them for a long time. And then you talk about like anti-anxiety drugs like Xanax and other benzodiazepines. They are actually effective at getting rid of anxiety, but they're also incredibly addictive. And people sometimes, you know, get addicted to things like Xanax and can even overdose on them. So it's like we have some solutions that are not that good. And oftentimes, they cause a lot of side effects. So the question is, is is there something better? And there's a lot of evidence that suggests that psychedelics are better than a lot of these current treatments with a lot fewer side effects. And oftentimes really only require one or two treatment sessions, meaning one or two doses of the psychedelic to get rid of these symptoms of depression or anxiety for a very long period of time, in some cases up to 12 months. And we can go into more specifics around some of the studies and some of those compounds, but you asked sort of like to give us a tour of you know the, the universe of psychedelic compounds. And I would say that probably the most commonly known psychedelic is psilocybin from the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. Psilocybin has been shown to be an incredibly effective antidepressant People that take two or three doses of magic mushrooms in conjunction with a follow-up therapy often have their depression symptoms relieved for up to nine to twelve months. You also have LSD, which of course is kind of the, the big famous, you know, psychedelic from the 60s. LSD is also very good at treating mental health issues, but it also lasts a very long time. You know, you can trip for like 12 hours on LSD, which maybe is not, you know, not very good to like fit into the schedule of like a busy person, whereas psilocybin is much shorter acting. You also have things like ketamine, which is not technically a psychedelic, but kind of close enough. It still has sort of the hallucinogenic experience. Ketamine is not nearly as effective as psilocybin, but ketamine through various uh, legal loopholes, mainly the fact that it is a drug that is used as an anesthetic, means that doctors can currently prescribe it off-label as an antidepressant totally legally. So you have ketamine, while not the most effective, is also the only real legal psychedelic at the moment. And then you have things like MDMA, you know, commonly known as ecstasy, which are also not technically psychedelics, but also have a similar sort of kind of hallucinogenic you know, experiential type. These are experiential type therapies, and they are shown to be very effective at you know, treating things like post-traumatic stress disorder. So those are sort of the, the known psychedelics. You have things that are a little bit more interesting, like DMT and ayahuasca, which are also effective, but less well-known. And then there's this whole interesting universe of, can we engineer new psychedelic compounds? Obviously, a lot of psychedelics are naturally occurring, like psilocybin and ayahuasca, but you think about some of the most popular drugs of all time, LSD, ketamine, MDMA. These things were all invented by humans, and they were invented by humans long before we had the internet computers, our modern understanding of neuroscience, modern computational chemistry, modern machine learning-assisted drug discovery techniques.
0: And also for very different kind of purposes, right? Like, I mean, LSD was not developed, you know, initially for, you know, certainly not for mental health, but it was a horse tranquilizer, like all of this sort of stuff was not developed with the purpose in mind that we have. Well, you know, the funny thing is that none of these, yeah, none of these were actually developed. They were not
1: intended... You know, as psychedelics, LSD, Albert Hoffman, when he was developing what would end up becoming LSD, he was actually trying to develop an anti-asthma medication, if you would believe it. And then he accidentally ingested some and was like, what is this? And ketamine, you know, you mentioned the horse tranquilizer thing, and I feel that it's my responsibility to set the record straight. Ketamine was developed as a human anesthetic, and it still is used in humans in a lot of the, in much of the world. In fact, ketamine is on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines, It is also used in animals as well, but yeah, it it is designed for humans and animal purposes. (laughs) Yeah. So I think the point is, is that, you know, for the past 50 years, if you were someone that was a skilled, you know, drug designer, if you took those talents and tried to apply them towards psychedelics, you know, that's basically career suicide. If you're an academic, no one's going to let you do that. If you want to do that on the, you know, commercial side, that basically means that you're an underground chemist. But now things are changing. And so if you're a person that has all these skills that really understands the brain, that understands how to design drugs, you actually can go out there and start a biotech company, raise money with the stated goal of we're going to invent like the next generation of psychedelics. And that to me is very interesting because, you know, we're, we're using psychedelics now that were invented back when the hottest car was the Ford Model T. And I want to know, like, what is the Tesla Model S Plaid of psychedelics?
0: That's amazing. I mean, like, I think exactly to your point, right, there's a there's a couple of things to dig into there. First of all, like, I think many of us will know what LSD and magic mushrooms are. Some of us may have tried them, I actually will admit not to having tried either of them. And I think, you know, the, how can I put it, the kind of common representation of taking either magic mushrooms or LSDs is kind of like that hippie tripping in the woods, very, very kind of airy fairy, which is clearly not uh, 100% of reality. And it's also a lot of the kind of propaganda that has come out of, you know, government and state media to counteract these sort of drugs, you know, certainly the war on drugs in, in the US, I would suggest, and here in the UK where they continue to, you know, continue to be legal and as is cannabis. So, you know, I think there's probably a great deal of misinformation out there that needs to be, I guess, you know, torn down and then rebuilt up with the, with the correct reality, right? Like, and, I, and thank you very much for correcting the record or correcting me, certainly on the ketamine. Again, again this is just like, it is, you know, it's the thing that everyone says, ketamine is a horse tranquilizer. And- and that's kind of what i had in my in my head right i'd love for you to talk about you know what is the difference between psychedelics and cannabis? Like how do they, you know, differ both as, as drugs, but as, you know, the protocols that they may be used for. And also again, like, you know, why is it that cannabis has, has certainly in the U S steadily become, you know, more palatable, certainly from a state level. And I think there is even now talk of a legislation at a federal level. And of course in in Canada, as an example, it's, it's now legal via state run dispensaries, right? So what are the differences and why are they treated so differently as well?
1: Yeah, no, this is a great question and a good thing to point out. So, you know, just on a a chemical level, maybe the similarity is that these are both drugs that make you feel something, right? They're experiential drugs, as I would like to, as I call them. But psychedelics generally function through like the serotonin system, cannabis functions through the endocannabinoid system. They're very different, like, you know, effects on the body and the brain. The biggest difference that I think is important for this discussion is sort of the difference in sort of the commercialization strategy. And this is going to be specific to the U.S. because that's the market that I'm familiar with. But in the U.S., cannabis is mostly focused around, you know, the recreational side. There is no legal federal market. There is no real FDA approved cannabis product. I think there was maybe one cannabis product that actually got approved by the FDA, something called Epidiolex, which is something that was designed for I think seizure reduction. But outside of that, there's really been no success in taking cannabis and turning it into some FDA approved drug. And part of the reason for this is that cannabis on its own is like relatively just effective at what it's good for, which is relieving pain and like soothing anxiety, right? So there's not much that you can do to like modify it as a drug. It also it just works, you know, you take the cannabis, you smoke it and that's it. Psychedelics on the other hand are kind of taking the opposite route. We're much closer to getting psychedelics approved by the FDA as a drug than we are to having any sort of like recreational markets in any of the states. There's not a single market in the United States where you can currently legally purchase psychedelics. Not not a single one in the US. Not on a state level, not on a city level. There are some that have decriminalized it but that just means that possession is legal for personal use. It doesn't mean that you can produce and sell it. Now that is changing. Oregon has passed some laws that are going to allow it to be produced and used in very, very limited circumstances. But most of the companies that we are investing in, in the psychedelic space are basically biotech startups that happen to be working with psychedelic molecules. Whereas with cannabis, if you're investing in cannabis, you're investing in all of these weird, like state level companies that, you know, are technically doing things that are federally legal that can't even get regular bank accounts and it's very complicated. So yeah, it's a very, very different sort of investment proposition. It's like biotech versus this sort of unregulated recreational quasi-legal quasi-illegal sort of plant business. Another big differentiator is that cannabis is really revolving around a single plant, right? It's the cannabis plant. Psychedelics is sort of an umbrella term for a whole universe of drugs and it includes all of the currently known psychedelics, and all of the yet-to-be-discovered next-generation psychedelics that a lot of these biotech companies are working on. So yeah, it's quite a different proposition. On the therapeutic side, like I sort of touched on earlier with cannabis, if you want to get the medical benefits of cannabis, you just buy some cannabis and you smoke it. With psychedelics, you know, just taking mushrooms by yourself in your apartment can be a bit of a roll of the dice. Sometimes it can be effective, sometimes it can't be. Most of the data and the studies that have come out of these university clinical trials suggest that if you want to get the mental health benefits of psychedelics, you need to have someone there with you to sort of guide you through the experience. You need to have someone there to prepare you for the experience. And the most important aspect of it is the the integration aspect where you talk to someone after the experience, often for multiple sessions where you talk about how to integrate the things that you felt or you learned during your psychedelic experience into your life going forward. That's what actually causes the change. None of that stuff really happens in the cannabis world. So there are all these other like touch points along the way of the psychedelic experience that can create business opportunities as well. So yeah, you know, there's a whole laundry list of differences.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, and it sounds like to me again, from the outside looking in, it sounds like cannabis again, you know, you talked about the fact that it's more kind of from a commercial perspective has been looked at from recreational usage, right? Which again, comes back to a lot of the misinformation that kind of arose, I think in the early 1920s, if I'm not mistaken, it was all around kind of prohibition. And it was seen as a a drug that was used by, you know, often disenfranchised, but you know, poorer communities, certainly African American communities and, and Hispanic communities. And there was kind of a backlash against it for that purpose. And I think it probably also is a little bit easier to understand and and is maybe even more prevalent because you hear a lot more about marijuana smokers. It's much more accepted, I guess, even within popular culture, right, in terms of uh, TV and film and so on. Whereas psychedelics, that I see, you know, your first thought is, I can't remember, was it Johnny Depp who played him? But you know. I forget, like what is it fear of loathing in las vegas right yeah andres thompson yeah. yeah yeah so that's the only kind of obvious and kind of really out there representation of kind of psychedelic use and i love the way that you talked about it as a much more something to do with you know pharmaceuticals and biotech like in the in the sense that it's a much more scientific process that is trying to discover you know yet more compounds that may be able to be used in different ways. Whereas again, with cannabis, it's, you've got a plant, there's maybe some crossbreeding, but effectively it's the same plant. It's got the same sort of compounds in there that are providing the same sort of effects to greater and lesser extent. But like, I mean, at a personal level, how did you actually get into the world of psychedelics, right. And psychedelic therapies, like what difference, I mean, you've talked a lot about the differences you think they can make, but what is the one biggest difference that you hope that they can make in the world?
1: Sure. Well, yeah, as you mentioned, lots of stigma going back a long time. One interesting thing that I think is kind of worth pointing out, though, is that with psychedelics, in the fifties, leading up the war on drugs, really kind of kicked off between I think nineteen sixty seven is kind of when the Nixon administration started, you know, getting upset that there were all these hippies that were talking smack about the Vietnam War and using psychedelics, and they decided it was. And then at the same time, you had veterans coming back that were addicted to opiates, and it was a bad look, and so they decided to you know start this whole war on drugs thing to get that stuff out of there. But one interesting thing that a lot of people don't know is that. In the 50s and early 60s, there were over a thousand scientific papers published on the use of psychedelics as mental health therapies. So, this was actually something that was happening back then. And in fact, when Albert Hoffman, the guy that invented LSD, you know, once he realized what he had created, he started just mailing it to psychiatrists around the world and people started using it and studying it. And so, this was actually happening back then. And then, because of these crazy drug policies, they basically You know, put a moratorium on any of this sort of research. And now we're finally like going back, picking up where we left off back in the 60s. So this is not really a new thing in some ways. And it's unfortunate that there's this image of, you know, irresponsible, crazy hippies, even though I'm kind of an irresponsible, crazy hippie myself, that because it actually started off as a scientific thing and then later got co opted by, you know, the hippies and as a recreational thing. It sort of like escaped the lab, so to speak. For me personally, I grew up in a military family and you know was raised kind of in like a religious environment and as a teenager kind of rebelled against that and became like a very, you know, staunch sort of like atheist type person. And then at, shortly after college, I was, you know, thinking about life and spirituality and everything and I was trying to figure out if there was a way that I could have some element of like mysticism or spirituality or whatever in my life without sort of believing in religion for lack of a better word. And when I started Googling that, I quickly came across psychedelics. And I saw them in all sorts of different, you know, representations and blogs and everything. There was one blog post in particular by this guy, Sam Harris, who I think a lot of people might know. And he had this essay that was called Drugs in the Meaning of Life, I think, that was published in 2011. And he talks, he's an atheist, but he talked about like some LSD experiences that he had. And yeah, it just really made me want to try it. And so I, I you know, I did and it was such a mind-blowing experience i did a high dose of lsd by myself on the on the deck of the house that i lived at and yeah it really just a lot of people say that their first psychedelic experience is up there in like the top 5 most memorable or impactful experiences of their life and that was definitely like what it was for me so i continued using psychedelics you know once or twice a year at relatively high doses as kind of a mental reset for lack of a better word And since then, you know, I've explored various forms of psychedelic therapy, done it with guides, done it without guides, you know, definitely used it to resolve like, you know, things that have bothered me about, you know, my past and that sort of thing. But to be honest though, I really thought that psychedelics were going to stay underground forever. I never, even if five years ago, if you'd asked me, like, is this going to be a thing that people can invest in legally, I would have said, no, this is crazy. But around the year, I think 2019, some, serious venture capital money started flowing into these psychedelic biotech companies Peter Thiel and Christian Engermeyer you know some pretty well known investors started putting money into these companies and in early 2020 we started seeing some RTOs on some of these Canadian stock exchanges so you would see these you know the Canadian exchanges they have a certain reputation and you you would see these companies that would IPO all of a sudden and their whole business model would be developing psychedelics and you know, I was kind of like, is this a scam? Is this real? What is is this? All I know for sure is that this is crazy that there's like a stock that's a psychedelic stock. And in 2020, I, you know, I was kind of getting fed up with the hedge fund job that I had. I wasn't sure if I wanted to stay in the hedge fund industry. I ended up quitting my job without much of a plan. But because there was this like sort of mini psychedelic, like capital renaissance happening, I was fascinated by it. I started just spending all of my free time trying to understand what was actually happening on like the business side of psychedelics. And that's what led me to sort of start the podcast. I wanted to talk to people that were in the psychedelic space. So I started started the podcast. I interviewed a lot of the founders, CEOs, and investors in the space. And I was really just doing it for fun. I didn't really think it would turn into anything. But I started getting a lot of emails from people that said, Hey, you know, I have $100,000 that I want to invest in psychedelics. What do you think I should do with it? And I also had a lot of startups in the psychedelic space reach out and say, Hey, why don't you like, you know, promote our company or something like that? We're trying to raise money. Can we use your platform? And I realized that without intending to, I had created an inbound stream of potential investors and potential investment opportunities. And I was like, this is pretty interesting. I also have, you know, an institutional financial background and I'm also a person that has done psychedelics, you know, for a long time. Like maybe I should like combine all of these things and start a psychedelics fund. So that's sort of what led to the creation of the fund, which is, you know, kind of interesting. I definitely wouldn't have predicted it.
0: Yeah. I mean, we're going to talk about the fun in a second, but there's a couple of things I just wanted to kind of touch on there as well. Like, One of the things that was going through my mind, just as you were talking there, was like in venture capital in general, we see a lot of generalist VCs. In fact, we see a lot of VCs that actually have never worked within startups or scale-ups. They tend to be kind of money managers as opposed to operators, right? And I wonder whether the same could be said for the psychedelics kind of sector of venture, if you like. Like, could you invest in psychedelics if you've never done them, right? It, It strikes me as you'd either have to have a strong background in pharma and medicine of some nature, or you would have had to have taken them and understood, but I can't see a time where you see kind of traditional money managers saying until it becomes mainstream and until it becomes like a big thing and and you start seeing those breakout therapeutics and companies. I just wonder whether it would ever, you know, certainly right now, whether it would be possible to see that, that same kind of level of activity as you see in generalist VCs, whether you'd see the same thing in, in psychedelics.
1: Yeah, well, the the question of like, do you need to have done psychedelics in order to invest in it, or you know, be in the industry, is an interesting one that actually is the sort of subject of a lot of debate within the psychedelics industry. You know, there are a lot of people that have been doing psychedelics for a long time underground, and now that there's an opportunity to have a legal business, are now starting to make a legal business around it, and they often feel very strongly about these sort of new entrants that maybe did mushrooms once three weeks ago and now their mind is blown and they've decided their life's purpose is to like,
0: (laughs) you know, be in the psychedelics industry. Turned up to Burning Man like last year and that was, yeah. yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. It happens. Right. And then, so despite that, we are starting to see some more generalist VCs get involved in the psychedelic space. So one of the companies that I invested in, their series A was led by Obvious Ventures, which is a pretty well-known generalist VC Another one of the companies that I invested in their round was led by Gary Tan's Initialized Capital, which is you know not not even really a healthcare VC at all, right? Obviously, a lot of VC money comes out of like the Bay Area, and a lot of the Bay Area guys are you know big into Burning and so there are a lot of people that are in VC that even though they won't, they're not set up to invest in psychedelics have certainly done psychedelics themselves, right? And podcasts like Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan that are popular with that crowd have been talking about psychedelic use and its benefits for a long time. So this is not a crazy topic for them. But I would say that there has developed this sort of small ecosystem of psychedelic funds. There are maybe about 10 of them, including mine. And these are people who are set up specifically to invest in psychedelics. Most of them are managed by people who have been personally using psychedelics for a long time. And yeah, we're starting to see more and more activity from the bigger companies or bigger funds, but you still get a vice clause as an
0: excuse, or our LPs would go crazy if we invested in something related to psychedelics. It really just depends. And I guess- Those smaller, those funds, those 10 or so funds, including empath that you mentioned, presumably are smaller funds, right? So as these businesses scale, you're going to need to get those larger funds involved one way or the other anyway, because like whether they're generalists or not, or whether they've done acid or not, they're going to need to, you know, someone's going to need to follow on the funding because otherwise you're never going to be able to break, get get those breakout therapies.
1: Especially on the biotech side, right? Because those companies need an insane yeah. amount of money. There, there are segments within the psychedelics industry that are not biotech. So you have, you know, technology and like accessories in the psychedelics world. You have a lot of the psychedelic stuff is going to be administered in like clinics or retreat centers. So you have like those businesses being built. But you're right, the biotech stuff, which is getting most of the attention at the moment, tremendous capital needs, and uh, I don't think that the psychedelic ecosystem is going to be able to incubate that internally
0: yeah no makes a lot of sense so let's actually talk a little bit about empath right there are a whole bunch of ideas and research directions that empath is interested in or you are interested in effectively and from looking beyond kind of mental health to digital addiction and therapeutics the integration with traditional medicine and incorporation into into crypto and web3 even so where are you seeing the most activity at the moment and in your opinion where, where is the biggest opportunity and, you know, a little bit like what we were just talking about, like what actually needs to happen for more widespread adoption, barring like regulatory kind of approvals and and so on?
1: Yeah, I mean, big questions. I think it might be interesting to give just a quick highlight or bird's eye view of kind of the different verticals within the psychedelics world. And then we can talk about how Empath is approaching them. So there are kind of like three main segments you can invest in. One are the people that are taking the psychedelics that we've known for about for a long time, psilocybin, LSD, ketamine, and trying to get the FDA to approve those as drugs. This is a pretty interesting model, by the way, because usually drug development happens where someone invents a new drug and it's never been used in humans and they try to get it approved. In this case, these things have been used by humans like forever. We all know that they kind of work. So we're kind of like flipping the script on the traditional drug route. The challenge with that business model, though, is that If you're running a clinical trial on something like LSD or psilocybin, you didn't invent that drug. And so you don't have like a patent on that drug itself. So you spend all of this money running the clinical trial. And instead of having, I think, 20 years of marketing exclusivity that you would get if you had invented it, you only get five years of what the FDA calls data exclusivity. So you're basically cutting your uh, profit potential, you know, down to a quarter of what it would be because you only have like exclusive rights to sell it for you know a quarter of the time so it's an interesting challenge right it's like it's super important for the industry to get psilocybin lsd and mdma approved by the fda but it's not as lucrative financially as you know it might be to invent a new molecule
0: you're effectively innovating for other people, kind of right? like, yeah. i mean ultimately yeah you're basically falling on your sword to allow the industry to grow beyond where it is today
1: And that's not to say that these companies aren't going to make money, but they're not going to have a 20-year government-enforced monopoly, right? Which is where you can get the massive, massive return. So the second vertical is kind of what I touched on earlier in the conversation about people inventing the next generation of psychedelic molecules. Now, of course, if you invent something new, you get a patent on it. You get that 20-year monopoly. Of course, the challenge is that inventing something new is really, really hard. It takes a ton of money, and it's probably not going to work. It's a high failure rate, right? You're, you, when you invent something new, you have to start in the test tubes, and then you go to the rats to make sure it's safe. And then you know, eventually, maybe you'll get into human trials. And so it's a very long, arduous road. But the upside is that you get a lot more you know, IP protection around it. The third vertical is sort of the infrastructure and accessories of the psychedelics industry. And that's a super broad category that contains, you know, everything from clinics and retreat centers to software companies that create like real-time adjustable music that is adjusts based on biofeedback to optimize your trip. We invested in a company that does that super weird kind of stuff. That's kind of the third vertical. And then the I guess the last vertical that we of course don't invest in is sort of the gray market, black market underground stuff that, you know, maybe eventually will turn into the rec- a recreational market similar to what we have in cannabis, but
0: that's much further down the road. Just before you continue, I'm like as you as you were saying that. So I mean obviously that third vertical is like I guess what, you know, one would call the picks and shovels, right? The stuff that surrounds the industry and and often is more lucrative than the industry itself. Like certainly, I guess again, using cannabis as a corollary, like the picks and shovels of cannabis is, or the all the stuff that goes around. I don't know, like the jellies and the dispensaries and all the paraphernalia, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's not necessarily the actual plant, right? The plant, etc., is is a category on, on its own. But one of the things, whilst you were talking there, you're talking about one of the businesses you've invested in with the music that enhances the experience. I think I saw recently, or even. Almost downloaded recently. I think someone has built an app that theoretically mimics the ability, or it, it, it produces some sort of music or sound or something that that mimics a psychedelic experience. If you sort of sit there, I think it's actually visual. That's right. So that you can tell how much I'm invested in in, uh, in psychedelic. But I mean, you know, it strikes me as that that is a really interesting kind of. Pathway to go down because it, it's potentially it reduces that need for the sort of same sort of trialing, possibly as as a drugs. I mean, are things like that happening more and more? Or is that just kind of bunkum that that being created to take advantage of of what's happening? <laughs> you know, that sort of
1: thing, the idea of like mimicking a psychedelic experience using virtual reality or something it's interesting. I've seen quite a few companies try to produce products that do that. And some of them actually. It's hard to explain unless you've really done psychedelics but a psychedelic experience is much more than seeing weird colors and patterns it's like an inner feeling and you might be able to reproduce that visual sense but it's very hard to reproduce the actual like strange sense of time dilation the synesthesia the feeling of oneness and connectedness that you get from the drugs that are this is not a visual thing this is not a thing you hear it's just something that you feel internally and at least my experience is trying some of these virtual reality products. It's just, it's not the same. And I haven't seen any studies that suggest that the actual therapeutic outcome is the same. So while some of those products are interesting, I don't know that they're going to replace
0: psychedelics anytime soon, but maybe they will eventually. We shall see, I'm sure. So look, talking about empaths investment criteria, unlike most software focused funds, right? You look at slightly different things when you're considering investing in a psychedelic venture, right so what do you look at, and what is most critical, irrespective of the problem they're solving?
1: Well, this is kind of the generic answer that I think everyone in early stage investing gives, but you know I'm generally focused on early stage stuff and in early the early stage world it's the team is very very important right founder market fit. One of the interesting things about psychedelics is that if you've if you've ever done psilocybin or LSD or MDMA. You know that the experience is incredibly powerful and can often just be very effective, right? And in the world of entrepreneurship, generally, what you want to do is you want to create something that's like an improvement on the status quo. And if you've ever done like you know an eighth of mushrooms, it's pretty hard to imagine like, man, what is going to be better than this, right? So like, how how do I improve on this? So one of the biggest things that I see in the psychedelics world is people have these business plans that really don't add any value to the psychedelic experience. For the end user or for the researcher or anything. So it's really like, is this has this company identified like a real problem? Something that is actually going to benefit maybe not everyone, but a certain sub segment of the potential, you know, population of people that might use psychedelics. And then if they've identified a real problem, is the team qualified to actually execute like on the vision? Those are sort of the two main things, right? And identifying a valuable problem is something that, you know, every industry needs to deal with. But I think in psychedelics, I just see so many companies that are not trying to solve real problems. <laughs> and so that, that, that's a big one that I look for. And I'm happy to you know, I can walk through a couple of different companies in the portfolio to kind of give you an idea of the breadth of things that exist out there that might be kind of fun.
0: Yeah, for sure. I, th- I think that really would, because I guess with psychedelics or anything that is, I guess, you know, a therapeutic or pharmaceutical kind of solution, what you don't want is a Theranos type situation right like you don't want to have someone who isn't actually an expert in the field dabbling with this sort of stuff you want to make sure that you have the right level of you know biologists microchemists i don't even know who the right you know who the right people are but presumably you need chemists pharmacists you need doctors you need therapists etc etc right you you probably need you know equally as much you need those that are are on the softer side of science in terms of psychologists and psychiatry etc right so i would imagine that you know th- that team which we all talk about and like i think of the how many vcs that i've i've interviewed over the last kind of year or so every single one of them has said team i would imagine for these sort of products team is even more critical because like you can't be some dude out of college you know studied languages as i did had taken, you know, maybe has taken a couple of, you know, has dropped a bit of acid in his type, like he's not going to be the guy that is going to come necessarily going to come up with the next therapy, right? So yeah, but it'd be great to, to understand a little bit about the companies you have invested in for sure.
1: Yeah. And you know, one of the funny things, just to piggyback on the team thing is that, Because of all the stigmas around psychedelics that we've talked about and these things are changing, but it's still kind of a weird thing, right? Like not everyone is comfortable just putting like psychedelic startup on their LinkedIn and, you know, creating that association with themselves. So because of that the psychedelics industry sort of self-selects for people that are, you know, maybe a bit out there, right? And so kind of like by default, the pool of people you're dealing with are always like a little bit weirder than like the people you might find in enterprise software. So it's even harder to, you, you sort of have to ask this question that one of my advisors, Danielle Strachman of 1517, she always uses, she's like, is this person crazy awesome or are they just crazy? And that's like the real thing that you have to figure out. Have they, they come yeah. out of JP Morgan or yeah. are they really, yeah, are they the real deal? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, when you're talking about the biotech drug development companies, yeah, you definitely need some kind of like real pharmaceutical development experience to kind of walk through maybe a couple of the companies that we've invested in that are not on the drug development side. So I talked about the music company. That one is called WavePaths. You can look them up at wavepaths.com. Basically, the guy that started their company, his name is Mendel Kalin. He did his PhD at Imperial College London, which is one of the top psychedelic research institutions. And he spent an entire PhD studying the impact that music has on psychedelic therapy outcomes. He's like the world's expert in music and psychedelic therapy. And he basically started this company, WavePass, to commercialize the things that he learned during his research about the types of music, the importance of personalization, the importance of being able to adapt the music in real time based on like what the patient is currently experiencing. Very fascinating stuff. They're an example of a company that Is generating revenues now they sell their software to ketamine clinics and they have i think 300 ketamine clinics paying them every month to use their software so that's that's kind of an example of a business that you might not have expected to you know hear about on this podcast talking about the the legal ketamine market in the u.s we invested in a company called new life spelled n-u-e life and they they're basically a telehealth app where you can download the app you talk to a doctor and the doctor is able to you know, diagnose you with depression or anxiety or whatever other you know, mental health issue you might have, and they can prescribe ketamine taken orally that they're able to legally in 10 different states in the US mail to your house. You do the experience there under like telehealth trip sitting supervision, and then you have the sort of integrative follow-up care via telehealth as well. So they they just launched in I think September of last year and have been growing quite rapidly and that's the company that I mentioned that uh, did a Series A led by Obvious Ventures.
0: You touched on something there that I think is probably what I would have thought would have been the biggest problem, right? So having seen you know some of my friends having done psychedelics in the past, certainly at university and so on. You mentioned trip sitting there, which I think is a is a great phrase, a great term. But that actually struck me as being one of the the problems, right? Because you obviously hear about bad trips, you hear about bad experiences, and it would self medication is obviously one of the problems that that I guess this industry faces, like so over medication or self medication, and that concept of trip sitting, you know, via telemedicine or via platform, I think is obvious almost is pretty intuitive, but is a relatively elegant way of solving that problem, right? Because I guess you're just monitoring the the patient, right? As opposed to just letting them get on and and do it, right? Yeah, absolutely.
1: And you know, according to the company's statistics, they they've facilitated over thirty thousand ketamine experiences via telehealth. And they've only had to call nine one one once.
0: Wow. I mean, yeah. That that's pretty impressive.
1: Yeah. And from what I understand in that one instance, it was because the person had lied about their medical history <laughs> on the intake form. And so, yeah. <laughs> and then to make the story even more funny, apparently a week later, that person that they called 911 on tried to sign up again under a different name because <laughs> they actually still had a good time, even though they had to. <laughs> the paramedics. <called. laughs> so yeah, generally like decent track record of success. And look, there's a lot of criticism of the telehealth model. People say it's impersonal, you know, so on and so forth. But, you know, the truth is that at least in the US, there are not enough therapists and there are certainly not enough therapists that are trained in psychedelic medicine. And I think some statistic I read, something like 40% of Americans don't live within an hour of a single therapist, right? So the idea that you're going to be able to have like in-person trips sitting or psychedelic therapy is just not realistic currently. So telehealth is kind of the best way to bridge that gap at the moment. And so, yeah, it's, it is what it is.
0: Sorry. I know, I know you you got it. There was another one that you were going to give us there, but like one of the things you said right at the beginning of the podcast, like one in five diagnosed one in six on meds, like this point about telemedicine is, you know, those stat- statistics are only relevant or are relevant for only the people who've even gone and got diagnosed. Right. So there are numerous people out there, I'm sure who haven't been diagnosed. And, you know, to your point there, if you're, you're living massive distances away from a therapist, like The reality of you getting diagnosed is going to be much lower. And if you can do that via telemedicine or telehealth, irrespective of kind of the challenges with that whole, you know, that mode of diagnosis and so on, it's still a better chance of not going at all, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: So the last company I wanted to touch on real quick, just because I think people will find this interesting is uh, there's a lesser known psychedelic drug called Ibogaine out there. Not a lot of people know about this. It is a naturally occurring psychedelic drug. It comes from Africa. It's a, the root of a tree. I think it's the aboga tree. And it's a really crazy trip. I've never done it. I don't really plan to. I hear it can last up to 36 hours and be quite scary. Certainly not the kind of thing you'd want to do you know, at Burning Man for fun. But Ibogaine has a very interesting side effect in that if you are someone that is addicted to opiates like heroin or Oxycontin and you take Ibogaine, your cravings for opiates like get eliminated basically. And this is something that has been demonstrated anecdotally thousands of times. You can you know, Google it yourself.
0: As in eliminated for good forever or like during the period you're taking?
1: Yeah, basically.
0: Yeah, wow, like eliminated. Amazing.
1: And this is a drug that is illegal in the US, although there are clinical trials that are being run on it at the moment. But it turns out that in Mexico, it's not illegal. So I invested in a company that is basically, that is basically created like a high-end retreat slash rehab center in Mexico. That uses Ibogaine to facilitate people getting off of opiates, if that makes sense. And you know, the founder of the company, the co-founder of the company rather, she personally benefited from this. She had a classic story that you hear about sometimes where when she was in her early 20s, she went to the dentist for a routine dental procedure. And they gave her, I think, Vicodin afterwards as a painkiller. And within like six to eight months after getting that Vicodin, she had become addicted to heroin. Like, you know, the Vicodin prescription ran out and her body felt so compelled to consume opiates that she started getting it on the street. And it's crazy, you know, someone who had never really done drugs before at all, all of a sudden is just like addicted to heroin because of going to the dentist. And she was lucky enough to come from, you know, a pretty well-to-do family that had resources to try and help her. And my understanding is that the family spent close to a million dollars on different rehabs for her. She would go to these rehabs and rehabs, I don't know what the, what it is in the, you know, the UK, but Rehabs in the U.S. are very expensive. You know, people routinely spend twenty, fifty thousand dollars for people to go to like a nine-day rehab, and oftentimes they don't work. You know, people detox and then they get out and they start using again. She had gone to all these different rehabs and nothing worked, and she eventually heard about ibogaine, and she ended up doing it underground with this guide, and that was it. She never wanted to use opiates again; it just like stopped for her. So now they're basically trying to make that same experience available to. Other people that need it. The company is called Beyond B E O N D. I think the website's B E O N D dot They just opened their doors to their clinic in the Yucatan Peninsula. I think in in March, and they've treated, I think something like thirty five to forty patients so far. And it's in addition to being extremely effective, because it's something that can be used done so quickly. It's also much more cost effective. So instead of spending you know fifty thousand dollars on a ninety day rehab. In this case, you're spending, you know, $10,000 on a 10-day rehab
0: that has a much higher success rate than a traditional rehab. So
1: lots of interesting stuff.
0: Yeah, that is absolutely incredible, right? Like, I mean, in fact, there's a Netflix series with like Nicole Kidman, which feels like that might even have been, you know, the the Uh, Nine Perfect Strangers. Yeah. Yeah, nine perfect strangers, right, which, it, which you know, it kind of feels like, you know, art imitating uh, life or whatever. But a couple of things there that I think are super interesting. So first of all, obviously, like the opioid crisis, I think in the US is much bigger than it is elsewhere. Certainly,
1: it's, a, it's insane here. Yeah,
0: yeah, certainly anecdotally, but that also, apart from obviously, a lot of stuff having happened over the last three or four years, where some of these larger pharmaceutical companies or, or the companies producing these drugs have been held to account, one would imagine that there is a fair you know that there, there is a fairly large lobbying kind of presence, and therefore, actually, you know, providing solutions to the, these problems can often, you know, there can be backlash or, or friction or difficulty getting through that. So, I mean, I think, you know, if there is a therapy that works in the sort of time frame that you talked about. And, you know, one can, can explore whether that can be done safely, et cetera. I mean, like that, that to me just sounds like exactly the sort of thing that, that we need to do. The other thing that you, you mentioned, which like, I certainly didn't know. And I wonder how many of of our listeners, certainly, you know, a lot of our listeners will be UK based that Imperial College London is like one of the the biggest research or one of the largest research facilities for psychedelics. I mean, I find that absolutely incredible. It actually, it makes me laugh a little bit because the UK also had, I think has or had the company with the largest or is the country with the largest export of legal cannabis, even though cannabis is illegal throughout the country, right? Like, so it's exported. I didn't know that. Yeah. So it's exported out of the UK. I don't know. I can't remember the statistics and the numbers now, but yeah, it was just one of these things that I find super crazy, right? The UK just kind of does a lot of stuff, which it won't allow its own population to do. But Brom, look, I think we're kind of, you know, wrapping up the podcast in a second, but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, this pod is about promoting the entrepreneurial journey and getting more people to take their shot back themselves. And it strikes me as being quite difficult to enter the psychedelic space, as we've already talked about to some extent, without that background, without that knowledge, right? So, how can more people get into the space? And you know, are there more barriers than one would find in a traditional kind of tech venture? And you know, what would be your advice to those on the outside who are looking to get into this kind of nation industry?
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. It might seem like there are all these barriers and that it's this weird, obscure thing, but I think the reality is is that because it's an emerging industry the demand for talented people probably far outweighs the supply right because there's still that stigma that prevents a lot of like smart otherwise you know talented people from participating in the industry so and because there's this it's this new industry there are no established you know gatekeepers or institutions that kind of run the thing yet so there is no Andreessen Horowitz or Sequoia of, you know, psychedelics yet. Maybe there will, maybe that'll be empath at some point, but it'll be the empath. Yeah, for sure. So I would say that if someone wants to get in, kind of do what I did, which is just try to add your voice to the conversation and, you know, see where that takes you. I've noticed that, you know, people in the psychedelics world are generally very open to having, you know, conversations with random people that DM them on Twitter or, you know, add them on LinkedIn. So yeah, just put yourself out there try to add a unique voice to the conversation. And I think, you know, that's, that's the key.
0: Amazing. Brom, it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you. I think I've learned a huge amount in those last 50 minutes. Certainly, you know, here in the UK, it feels like we don't have many voices in this space. So I would encourage any of our, our listeners based here in the UK or Europe, you know, if, if this is a topic that interests you, you should get in touch with Brom and you should figure out how to do something in the UK to explore this uh, even further. But Brom, for our listeners, where's the best place to, for them to find you online? Are you on LinkedIn? Are you on Twitter? Where can they find you on the web? Yeah, so you can check out Empath Ventures,
1: pretty easy website, empath.vc. You can follow me on Twitter at the Real Brom. And you can find me on LinkedIn. My name is Brom Rector. Just type it in. It'll show up. Not too many other Brahms out there. So it shouldn't be too difficult.
0: Amazing. And I hear the integration conversation may be going through a bit of a name change. Have you landed on one yet?
1: Yeah, trying to, you know, that it's a bit of an the name was that integration is an important part of psychedelics. That's the part where you like try to, you know, integrate the things that you learn in the experience of your life. But I feel like I have to continue explaining that to people every time I tell people the name. So trying to come up with a new name, but you can find all the episodes at empath.vc slash podcast. That's that's easy. And then it'll be there no matter what
0: the name ends up being. And yeah, and if anyone has any great suggestions, just like ping them to me or to Brom on Twitter. I'm yeah. sure he will I'm sure he will evaluate each of them based on their merits. Brom, thank you so much for joining me. It's been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Trish I really had a great time. Thanks for listening to Nothing Ventured, an Emerge One production. Follow us on social and at nothingventured.tech to make sure you never miss another episode. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can support us by giving us five stars on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners to understand the topics and guests that they'd like to hear about and from most. Drop us a message via the links in the show notes, and thanks again for your support.